How many old hippies with us tonight? Got a few old hippies? First, we need to turn the lights back on. Ooh, there we go. Any old hippies? Got a few old hippies? Well, you will remember the 1966 tune sung by the Mamas and the Papas. You remember the Mamas and the Papas? Monday, Monday. Monday, Monday. Can't trust that day. It's about a spurned lover. A couple enjoys the weekend together, but on Monday, the singer gets dumped. Monday, Monday, couldn't guarantee that Monday evening you would still be here with me. Jesus, too, had a wonderful weekend with the Jewish people. As he rode the donkey down the Mount of Olives, the crowds cheered him as their Messiah. But after Jesus cleansed the temple, after he embarrassed their scholars in a clash of scriptural knowledge, after his harsh words about their hypocrisy, the leaders of Judaism were furious And on Monday, they decided to dump Jesus. On Monday night, Jesus makes a prediction and the priests, they hatch a plot. In chapter 26, verse 2, Jesus tells his disciples again, You know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's the prediction. But notice the plot. They all meet at Caiaphas' house. That very same night, the chief priests gather together and they plot to kill Jesus. It's interesting, Caiaphas was the high priest. But his father and his four brothers had a huge temple business. And when Jesus drove out the money changers, guess what that did to Caiaphas' prophets? It cut into them severely. That's why these priests gather together, among other reasons, to plot the murder of Jesus. Their only concern is to do the dastardly deed before the feast while the people are preoccupied with their Passover preparations. The fewer the people know about this, the better off they'll be. Monday, Monday, can't trust that day. It was the day the Jews rejected Jesus. But it was also a day of worship that Monday. For on Monday night, Jesus gathered his disciples together when a woman approached him. She had an alabaster flask filled with a spindy perfume. It could have been an Indian import, possibly a family heirloom. It was certainly worth a great deal of money, maybe even a full year's wage. John chapter 12 identifies this woman as Lazarus' sister, Mary. She breaks the flask. She pours the fragrance on the head of Jesus. It was a display of great love and honor. Mary's act stands out as an example of true worship. I call it the ABCs of worship. The A is adoration. Hey, her act of worship was done out of love, not law. Out of delight, not duty. You see, real worship is never forced or coerced. It flows freely from an adoring heart. The B is brokenness. Her fragrance filled the room. It reached Jesus Only after the flask was broken. And likewise, worship flows from a broken, humble life. And C is costliness. True worship does cost the worshiper. It's extravagant. Real worship will cost you some time, some effort, maybe your image and some ego. Perhaps some legitimate pleasures and activities, even some money. And this is what upset the disciples. They object in verse 9. 
For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. You see, they're stuck in a utilitarian mindset. They measure value with numbers. The numbers of mouths fed, or the numbers of goods and services distributed, or the numbers of people helped. Worship, though, has no utilitarian value. Think about it. Worship is like buying flowers for your wife. On a practical level, buying flowers for your wife is a terrible waste of money. But relationally, it is an extremely valuable and important gesture. You see, a worshiper doesn't think pragmatically. A worshiper thinks romantically. It's not what I can get done, but it's how much love can I show. That's the mentality of worship. And Mary is an example of a worship mentality. In chapter 26, verse 11, Jesus comes to Mary's defense. He says to his disciples, For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. In other words, there will always be ministry opportunities. There will always be hurting people to help. Ministry fills up whatever time you give it. And there's always more to do when you're done. The needs never end. But times with Jesus, they're priceless. Worship is the better part. It's a noble deed, certainly, to feed the poor. But it can't compare with the opportunity to warm the heart of God. We need that worship mentality. John chapter 12, verse 6 identifies Judas as the chief critic of Mary's worship. Kent Hughes labels Judas the man who knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. Mary was a lover of God. She was a true worshiper. Judas was not. And it was this episode, perhaps, that pushed Judas to conspire with the priests here in chapter 26, verses 14 through 16. He betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Judas becomes a traitor. In verses 17 through 30, Jesus celebrates with his disciples what we call the Last Supper. The evening begins on an ominous note, verse 21. Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. (gasps) And they all said, Lord, is it I? Now, Jesus knew all along that Judas was the culprit. But the disciples had no idea that it was Judas. They all said, is it I? You know, that's very interesting. Because I'll tell you, if I had known all along that Judas was going to be my betrayer, it would have been obvious by this point. That's right. I would have made sure Judas got all the dirty work. Judas, you're on permanent latrine duty. Yep, cold food for Judas. Judas, backseat of the bus. Judas would have been in my doghouse from the very start. But notice the disciples, they ask, Is it I? Nothing had tipped them off in Jesus' attitude toward Judas that he was the betrayer. That means to me that Jesus loved Judas. And all along, he gave Judas every opportunity to repent. When Judas asks, Rabbi, is it I? Jesus answers him, you have said it. 
realize the Passover Seder was a 1,500-year-old tradition. Every year at Passover, the Jews commemorated their deliverance from Egypt. The unleavened bread spoke of their faith. The Hebrews believed that God would deliver them the very next day. Therefore, they didn't have time to let the bread rise. They made it without leaven. The cup of wine represented the blood of the Passover lamb that was spread on the doorposts and thresholds of the house. Because of that sacrificial blood, the plague of death passed over the house, thus the name Passover. What Jesus did that night, though, was totally revolutionary. It was radical. What he did was to take a 1,500-year-old tradition and give it brand new meaning. He held up the piece of bread and he said, this is my body. Then he took the cup and said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. On that night in Egypt, the deciding factor for that household was not the morality of the people within it. It was not even their faithfulness. No, the issue in that house was whether the blood had been spread on the doorposts and the thresholds. That's what either caused death to come or death to pass over. Guys, the same is the issue today. This is the issue in our lives. It's not your inherent goodness. It's not the good deeds that you do. It's whether you've trusted in Jesus Christ. It's whether you have spread His blood on the doorposts and thresholds of your heart. He is our Passover lamb. His blood, when applied to my heart, causes death to pass over. It's not my good deeds, it's the blood of the Lamb. After supper, Jesus and his disciples head around the southern steps of the temple back to the Mount of Olives, to a small grove of olive trees known as the Garden of Gethsemane. But along the way, in verse 31, Jesus warns them, All of you may be made to stumble. All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, and here he quotes Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Peter is the first one to object. In verse 33, he makes a haughty confession. He says, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. You know, pride goes before a fall. Beware of self-confidence. You see, our only hope, guys, is God in us. Propping us up, propelling us onward. We need to have faith in his strength, not our strength. In verse 34, Jesus warns a proud Peter, This night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter proved chicken before the rooster crowed. When they reach Gethsemane, the tension mounts. Jesus takes the inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. And he sets himself apart to pray. In verse 38, Jesus says, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Jesus throws himself face first on the ground. He begins to pour out his soul to his Father in heaven. He prays in verse 39, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Most people assume that Jesus is asking to escape the cross. 
that the cup was the cross? I don't think so. I believe that the cup that Jesus wanted to pass from him was full of hurt and rejection. He had just predicted that his disciples would deny him. In fact, this very moment, Judas is on his way to betray him. In a few hours, his people, the people he came to save, the Jews, will be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. You know, it's one thing to die for people who appreciate the sacrifice. (laughs) It's another thing to die for a bunch of people who are bent on hammering in the nails. I believe Jesus was tempted, just as we are tempted, to stop loving, to build up a resentment toward his disciples, toward the people he came to save, to hold a grudge in his own heart. You see, Jesus was born to die. This was never an issue for him. He had been telling the disciples for weeks now that he was going to Jerusalem to be crucified. In fact, that very night, John 17, verse 1, Jesus had even referred to the cross as his moment of glory. Jesus isn't asking God to let him avoid the cross here. He's asking God to remove the resentment, the cup of hurt and rejection that he feels so that he can embrace the cross. And I believe God heard and answered his prayer. What an honor now for Peter, James, and John to be present at this moment. Can you think of a holier occasion in the history of humanity than to be by the side of Jesus as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he's crucified? Don't you know the disciples, they're there with him. They're locked in. They're praying fervently. They're supporting Jesus in his struggle. Uh, Not hardly. They're sawing logs. They're sound asleep. They're cutting disease, baby. They're snoozing the night away. Apparently, Jesus has to wake them up. He asks in verse 40, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. Have you discovered that? You know, spiritually, we are transformed the moment we come to Christ. I am a new man in Christ Jesus, but this new man is trapped in a corrupt old body. And that old body lets me down at times. The flesh lets me down. We've all been guilty of starting out in prayer and ending up in sleep. (laughs) We're weak when we ought to be strong. We're hyperactive when we need to slow down and wait. The flesh is a constant struggle. Yes, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. For years, I wondered why the chief priests needed Judas. Surely they could have picked Jesus out on their own. They had seen him often enough. And why did Judas identify him with a kiss? Wouldn't a finger point would have been just as effective? I believe using Judas was Satan's way to try to embitter Jesus. A kiss, a sign of friendship was a dagger in the back. Satan hoped that a betrayal of this magnitude would make Jesus want to throw up his hands and forget about the cross. That's why Jesus had prayed that the Father would take that cup from him. And God obliged. His heart now overflows with love, even for his enemy. Look at how Jesus responds to Judas' kiss in verse 50. 
He says, friend, why have you come? Imagine. He calls Judas friend. Jesus looks his betrayer in the eye and feels nothing but love for him. You know, guys, we too need to ask for God's strength to forgive our enemies, to love our enemies. Notice how the disciples respond to Judas and this priestly posse who come to arrest him. They draw swords to fight. One disciple even cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. I think he went to to split his head wide open and the guy kind of turned at the last minute and it clipped off his ear. Jesus has to do some miracle surgery, puts it back on. John chapter 18 tells us that the sword-slinging disciple was none other than, you guessed it, old Peter. You see, Jesus tells him, wait a minute, put your swords up. This is not your fight. This is the fulfillment of Scripture. We are wise to know what's our fight and what's not our fight. The miracle of putting the ear back on stunned the crowd. The power of the miracle and then also its kindness. It's not every day when a wanted man works miracles for the people who are arresting him. Verse 57 introduces the most important trial in history. Jesus of Nazareth versus the Jewish Sanhedrin. Verse 27, and those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Understand the Sanhedrin was the Supreme Court of Judaism, and they had all gathered. At first, the prosecution has a difficult time finding any credible witnesses. Finally, they find a man who had once heard Jesus say that he would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. They thought that he meant the literal temple. They didn't realize Jesus was speaking of the resurrection of his own body. But when asked by the priest if it was true, Jesus remained silent. Finally, in verse 63, Caiaphas cuts to the chase. He says, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, that's when he opened his mouth. It is as you have said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the son of man coming at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, this is a very clear confession. Jesus is saying, yes, I am God. And surely Caiaphas understood exactly what he meant because he tore his clothes. Which was an accusation of blasphemy. Guys, people might deny that Jesus is God, but they can't deny that he made that claim. That's exactly who he purported to be, was God. His claim to deity was not the creation of the church. It came from his own mouth. Verses 67 and 68 are difficult for us to read. They're so sad. Then they spat in his face. And beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? But the mockery going on inside Caiaphas' house was not as tragic as the denial that took place outside. Peter is identified as a follower of Jesus, first by a little girl, then by another girl, finally by a group of people, and each time he denies 
that he knows the Lord. And after the third denial, we're told in verse 74. And then he remembered Jesus' words. And we're told he went out and wept bitterly. You see, Peter learns a lesson on trusting in God's strength, not his own. Vance Havner used to say, the Lord had the strength and I had the weakness, so we teamed up. It was an unbeatable combination. That's what Peter learned the hard way. But for a while, he wept bitterly. The verdict was cast at Caiaphas's house, but there was one technicality. It was against Jewish law to administer the death penalty at night. And so they had to wait, wait until morning light to make it official. It may have been as early as 5 a.m. when they shuttled Jesus off to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. It had been a busy night for the Jewish leaders. It had been an exhausting night for Jesus, a humbling night for Peter, a sleepless night for Judas. You see, the betrayer's conscience had gotten the best of him. And to ease the guilt, he went back to the temple and he tried to return the 30 pieces of silver. He told the Jews in chapter 27, verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. When they refused to take back the money, he threw it down in the temple and left. Judas spent the rest of the morning just hanging around from the limb of a tree, that is. Verse 5 tells us that after leaving the temple, Judas went and hanged himself. In 19 AD, the Romans stripped the Jews of their right to capital punishment. And so to legally kill Jesus, the Jews had to get Pilate, the Roman governor's permission. The Sanhedrin knows that they're going to have to come up with some kind of trumped up charges that Pilate will see as a threat to Rome. Since the Roman Empire was ruled by an emperor, the Jews figured that Jesus' claim to be king would be perceived as a threat to Caesar. Pilate, though, is not so sure. Verse 14 says that he marveled at Jesus' calm and his poise. He was impressed that Jesus could stand before his accusers in silent confidence. Verse 18 of chapter 27 tells us that Pilate could also see through the Jews. To him, it was obvious the real motivation for their desires to execute Jesus was sheer envy. It's also interesting. Verse 19 tells us of a warning from Mrs. Pilate. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. You know, many a man has been saved from disaster by a warning from his wife. Pilate should have taken better heed. It's interesting, this Mrs. Pilate was Claudia Procula. She was the daughter of Caesar Augustus. And historical sources tell us that after Jesus' resurrection, she became one of his followers. Pilate faces now a crisis. He wants to make political points with the Jews, but he can't risk a riot. His job is to keep the peace, but he knows Jesus is an innocent man. He's between the proverbial rock and a hard place. Suddenly, 
Pilate remembers an old custom that should get him off the hook. At the Passover, the governor can release a prisoner to the Jews. Pilate stacks the deck to make sure that he'll be able to release Jesus, that they'll choose Jesus because he gives them a choice, either Jesus or a terrorist. A low-down, dirty man nobody would want back on the streets by the name of Barabbas. Barabbas was the Jewish equivalent of Timothy McVeigh. He was a crazed radical who protested government action by bombing buildings and child care centers. Pilate figured Jesus would be an easy pick. No one would want Barabbas back into the public square. Somehow, though, the Jewish leaders were able to mingle in the crowd and persuade the people to cry for Barabbas for his release. Pilate still tries to avoid sentencing Jesus. We're told in verse 22, Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. In verse 24, Pilate unsuccessfully tries to wash his hands of the whole matter. Church historian Eusebius He reports that Pilate was tormented by a guilty conscience for the very rest of his life. And eventually he ended up in Rome where he committed suicide. He was never able to wash his hands of Jesus. Neither did the Jewish people fare very well in their future. Jews who know history have long regretted the cry in verse 25, let his blood be on us and on our children. For two millenniums, the Jews have suffered as a result of their rejection of Jesus Christ. Guys, it is so true. No one, no one can wash their hands of Jesus Christ. We all must make a choice. Verse 26 says that Pilate released Barabbas and had Jesus scourged. The Roman scourging was nicknamed the halfway death. It was a brutal beating with a leather strap. A person's back was cut to ribbons, reduced to hamburger meat. This was the beginning of the horror that Jesus endured. You see, the path to the cross begins in verse 27 at the praetorium, at Pilate's Temple Mount headquarters. They dressed Jesus mockingly in a royal robe. They twisted a crown of thorns on his brow, the only crown he ever wore. They spit on Jesus. They beat him. They mockingly bowed down and shouted, Hail, King of the Jews. When the Romans are done, Jesus' rugged body and kind features are reduced to a quivering mass of bloody tissue. The soldiers lead him off to be crucified. Jesus is weary. He's weak. He's been up all night. He has suffered tremendous trauma and blood loss. Now the soldiers force Jesus to carry his own patibulum or cross beam. This was the board to which they nailed him. It weighed about 100 pounds. Along the path to Golgotha, Jesus buckles under the load. The soldiers grab a man out of the crowd to carry the beam. His name is Simon. He's from North Africa. He's probably in town for the Passover, in essence, on vacation. Mark implies that Simon was just passing by. 
when he felt the point of the Roman spear in his shoulder. Not only is his day interrupted, but his whole life is changed forever. Tradition tells us that Simon and his family became followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus was crucified at a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There is an outcropping of rock north of Jerusalem that looks like a skull. Jesus was either crucified on the top of this rock or at the bottom alongside the road. In verse 34, they offer Jesus a narcotic to deaden the pain, but he refuses. Understand, Jesus' goal on the cross is to bear the full brunt of our sin and its penalty. Verse 35 says simply, then they crucified him. Look at him now as his body hangs from the cross beam. His legs are pushed up so that his heels are just under his buttocks. The weight of his body is supported by seven-inch iron spikes that have been driven into his hands. A single spike has been driven through both heels. Roman orator Cicero called crucifixion the cruelest and the most frightening form of execution ever invented. In fact, cultured Romans refused to even say the word cross. It makes you wonder, if Jesus had to die, why did God choose crucifixion? Why not a more humane method? The gas chamber, the electric chair, maybe lethal injection. But God chose the cross. Because he realized that that's what our sin deserves. The cross speaks of the severity of man's sin and the sincerity of God's love. In verse 35, the Roman soldiers gamble. They shoot craps for Jesus' coat. They also raise a placard. This was where they posted the victim's crimes. The sign over Jesus' head read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified on either side of Jesus. And as if all this was not enough, the Jewish leaders all came out to pour salt in the wound. They stood at the foot of the cross and they continued to mock Jesus unmercifully. They taunted him. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him. Jesus was crucified around 9 a.m. He hung on the cross from three out for three hours, and then around noontime, God turned off the light. It was midnight at midday. The darkness lasted from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon. Verse 45 tells us there was darkness over all the land. It was about three o'clock that the folks that were all still gathered at the cross, they heard the suffering Savior utter a strange cry. Verse 46, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The people who didn't speak Aramaic, they misunderstood Jesus. You see, Aramaic was the common man's Hebrew. The aristocrats thought that Jesus was calling for Elijah. He was actually quoting Psalm 22, a messianic psalm. And he was calling for God's help. I believe it was at that moment that the sin of the whole world was thrust upon Jesus' innocent shoulders. The man who had never sinned suddenly felt the sin of the whole world. The sin of the rapist, of the murderer, of the liar, of the thief. 
The Son, who had lived in perfect harmony with the Father from eternity past, now suddenly feels the alienation that results from sin. And that's why the Savior screams out. He shrieks out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, after the scream, we're told that Jesus yielded up his spirit. That phrase in verse 50 is strategic. Jesus' life was not taken from him. It was willingly given to God. Hey, he did it all for you. He was separated from the Father so that you could be reunited, so that you could know God. Wow. What love he has for you. Have you accepted his offer? Three important phenomena follow the aftermath of Jesus' death. Snap. The veil in the temple is torn in two. The symbol of our separation with God is ripped apart. The penalty of sin has now been paid in full. From now on, God is holding open house. There is access to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ. Crackle. The earth begins to quake. The rocks split open. Remember, sin produced an adverse effect on nature. Thorns and thistles made it harder to till the ground. This was a preview here of things to come. The death of Jesus will ultimately liberate nature as it did for man and pop. Several of the tombstones blew off the mouths of the graves. Three days later, when Jesus rose from the dead, there were even a few impromptu resurrections. It was proof that the death of Jesus meant life for all. Snap, crackle, pop. It was a great, great day. There was a centurion there that day that saw these things. He witnessed the cross and the events that followed. He was no doubt a battle-hardened skeptic. But the evidence he had seen was so overwhelming that he concludes in verse 54, Truly, this was the Son of God. A Jewish disciple of Jesus, a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, he asks Pilate for the body of Jesus, and then he lays Jesus in his own new tomb. I'm sure the chief priest went home that night with the smug assurance that their problems were now over. Their chief critic had been silent, silence forever, they thought. But on Saturday, they started having some second thoughts. Someone had recalled that Jesus had promised that after three days I will arise. And they started feeling uneasy. That's when they approached Pilate. And they demanded that Pilate post a guard there. So that Jesus' disciples wouldn't come and steal the body. And foster some hoax that he had been risen from the dead. You know, I'm always amused when skeptics today try to discredit Jesus' resurrection using the same argument. Don't they realize that the Sanhedrin prohibited that possibility? They got Pilate to seal the tomb and to set a guard of trained Roman soldiers over it so that this very thing wouldn't happen? Trust me, there is no way that the chicken little disciples are going to show up, overpower a band of professional soldiers... These are Roman Marines. Then incur a death sentence upon themselves for breaking the seal of the emperor on that tomb, all to foster a hoax from which they would never prosper. Now, if you believe that, 
I got some swampland I want to sell you. Trust me, the disciples had nothing to do with what happened the next day. Has it ever dawned on you why we as Christians worship on Sunday morning? Has it ever dawned on you? Why not on Friday night? Why not on Tuesday afternoon? We worship Jesus on Sunday morning due to what happened on a Sunday morning some 1,969 years ago. Matthew 28, verse 1, says that it was the first day of the week. It was Sunday morning. But you know, it was more than the first day of the week. It was also the first day of a new era. Mark 16, verse 1, tells us that the two Marys brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Apparently, the chief priests had paid closer attention to Jesus' words than his own disciples. They remembered that he had promised to rise the third day. That possibility never dawned on the two Marys. They come to dress a corpse. They arrive, though, just in time for the action. The earth begins to quake. An angel appears and rolls back the stone. The soldiers freak. The women are afraid, too. And that's when the angel tells them, verse 5, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Note the angel moved the stone not to let Jesus out. He was already gone. It was to let the woman see in for themselves. Jesus is the only human who got a tomb on a timeshare. He didn't need a permanent tomb, just three days of occupancy. Jesus didn't buy a tomb. He borrowed a tomb. He is the only person who died, then rose, to never die again. Jesus is risen, and he lives today. You know, the birth of Christianity didn't begin on the basis of some philosophical argument or through some mumbo-jumbo of metaphysical Blah, blah, blah. No, from the outset, it was founded on a historical, verifiable, actual event. An event that occurred in time and space. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I like what secular historian Thomas Arnold once wrote of Jesus' death and resurrection. He says, I have for many years studied the histories of other times. And I know of no one fact in the history of humanity which is proved by better and fuller evidence than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus rose. The stone rolled back. The angel appeared and he invited advocate and adversary alike to look inside the tomb and see for themselves. Examine the evidence. If he is alive then you need to fall at your feet, at his feet, and worship him. If he isn't alive, then dismiss it all as a bunch of bunk. But if he's risen, then he is who he said he was. And one day you'll do business with him. And you need to fall at the feet of the risen Christ. You see, all Christianity hangs on the truth of the resurrection. Notice the progression from verse 6 of chapter 28 to verse 7. In verse 6, the angel says, come and see. 
In verse 7, he says, go and tell. And guys, that's still the progression. Come and see that Jesus is alive. Then, go and tell others the good news. Now, I've heard it suggested that the reason women were first to receive the good news of the resurrection was that God knew that women loved to talk and they would be sure to tell others about it. The news would spread far and wide. But, but I don't go with that. You know, I'm not, I don't feel that way. I have a different theory, which is much more flattering toward women anyway. In Matthew 27, verse 61, you'll notice that the first two people to the empty tomb are the last two people who left the cross. Have you ever noticed that? Catch this. Those who shared longer and deeper in his sufferings were the first to experience the joy of his resurrection. I think what that means for us is don't shy away from his passion. If you don't, then you'll experience his power. In verse 9, Jesus meets the two Marys on their way back to tell the disciples. And notice the first words out of the mouth of the risen Lord Jesus. Notice what they are. Can you, can you see them? Can you read them? What's the first word? Rejoice. Take joy. In verse 10, Jesus tells the Marys to have the disciples meet him in Galilee. And I love how Jesus refers to the disciples. What does he call them? My brethren. Oh, can you imagine the relief in those words if you had been one of the disciples that denied and betrayed Jesus. He still considers us his brothers. Hallelujah. They've been forgiven completely. You know, Saturday's children, they walk around with grim faces. They've got no reason to rejoice. Life is bleak and burdensome. The guilt is unbearable. But Sunday's children. Oh, Sunday's children, they have a bounce in their step. They keep a smile on their face. Their outlook is bright. Their future is rosy. They know that their sins are forgiven and they are accepted by Jesus. Why? Because they live in the light of the resurrection. Jesus is alive. And he wants to live in you. Are you a Saturday's child or are you a Sunday's child? Jesus meets his disciples in Galilee where they spend, where they had spent so much time together. And in verses 18 through 20, he commissions his disciples. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Notice here the target, the task, the tools. The target is not just any nation. It's not just some nations. It's not just our nation. No, it's all nations. The task is not just to win converts, but it's to make disciples. And that involves two things. First, baptism which initiates folks into the body of believers, and second, teaching, which presents the Word of God and enables them to grow in their faith. You don't become a healthy Christian 
without those two things, without good fellowship and good feeding. And the tools of this, te- of this commission are the authority of Jesus and the promise of his presence. You know, we hardly seem up to such a daunting commission, do we? Go into all the world and preach and teach the gospel. Imagine, though, Jesus' first audience. He plans to reach the world with this group of frightened fishermen? Men who've never been more than a couple of days from home? And yet he has vested in them the authority of heaven. He has given them the promise of his presence. Jesus knows those two things will more than make up for their inadequacies. And guys... We have the same provision for the same commission. So go. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.